the last uh, three Sundays, we have been looking at these rhythms that define us as Jesus followers. And so far, we have looked at four different rhythms. We've looked at baptism, we've looked at communion, we've looked at prayer, and we have looked at Bible reading. And so this morning, we're going to look at our fifth rhythm, which is the rhythm of church. And it's actually interesting because the rhythm of church really encompasses all those other four rhythms, doesn't it? Because it's in church that we do baptisms and we take communion and we read the Bible together and we pray for one another. And so really this morning is a, is a, a summary of and a reminder of all the things that we have been looking at for the last three weeks. And we have been looking at these rhythms because God uses these rhythms to shape us and to form us as a disciple. But secondly, we've been looking at these rhythms because so many of us seem to struggle with them. So often we turn these rhythms into a to-do list and we think if we can just cross these items off the list, you know, I read my Bible, check. I prayed, check. I went to church on Sunday, check. That somehow we're going to win God's approval for the week because we've done these rhythms. But that's a misunderstanding of the purpose of spiritual rhythms. Because spiritual rhythms don't make us a Christian. They don't earn us God's favor. But what these spiritual rhythms do is they connect us. They connect us to God. They connect us to our calling, and they connect us to our community. And the rhythms of church enable us, it makes it possible to have these connections, because these connections are embedded in the very nature of the church. You see, being part of the church connects us to God, because the church is the bride of Christ. And being part of the church connects us to our calling, because the church is the body of Christ. And being part of the church connects us to our community, to one another, because the church is the brotherhood of Christ. And so that's our outline for this morning. We're going to see how these rhythms connect us to God, our calling, and our community by looking at these three biblical metaphors for the church. That the church is the bride of Christ, the church is the body of Christ, and the church is the brotherhood of Christ. So if you're a note taker, this is your outline. This is what we're going to be covering this morning as we go through these biblical metaphors of the church. But before we get into this too far, I do want to give one disclaimer on the last of these three, where it says the church is the brotherhood of Christ. Because really, it's probably more accurate for me to say that the church is the family of Christ rather than the brotherhood of Christ. But family doesn't start with a B. And so I have substituted the brotherhood here just for the sake of alliteration. And so if you're a woman in here, I'm not trying to exclude you because I use the term brotherhood. I just like the alliteration. So, But before we get into these biblical metaphors for the church, I think it's good for us to stop and define our terms a little bit. What do we mean when we talk about church? Because church may have a whole lot of different meanings for you, depending upon your background and your experience. Well, the Greek word translated as church in our Bibles is the word ekklesia, which of course is the name of our church. And so really, we're pretty unoriginal because basically the name of our church is church. It's not very original. And this Greek word ekklesia literally means a gathering or an assembly of people. So the church is a gathering or an assembly of God's people as we come together. But the Bible uses this word church much more broadly than just a gathering. And the the Bible uses this word church in two very distinct ways. First of all, the church can mean the universal church. And by universal, I mean that we say that the church consists of all of the followers of Jesus throughout all of history and from every location around the globe. 
So for example, when the Bible says that Christ has died for the church, it doesn't mean that Christ has died uniquely for us here at Ecclesia Eugene or First Baptist Church or whatever other church down the street there is. Rather, that Christ has died for all believers in all time from every location around the globe. He died for the universal church. But secondly, the church can also mean this local church. And by local, I mean a local assembly of Jesus followers who regularly meet in order to hear the Bible proclaimed, to pray with one another, to baptize, to take communion together. So for example, in the Bible, when it says that Paul is writing letters to the church in Corinth or the church in Ephesus, he's talking about the local assembly of Jesus followers in those particular cities. They are a local assembly. So in one sense, here at Ecclesia, we are the church. We are a local church. We are a gathering or an assembly of God's people in this local location. But in another sense, we are only part of the greater universal church. And both are accurate ways to think of the church. The first time that we see Jesus use the word Ecclesia is actually in Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 to 18. Take a look at Matthew 16, verses 15 to 18. And we jump into this where Jesus is having a discussion with his disciples. And it says in verse 15, he, Jesus, said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So in verse 15, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you think that I am? And after some discussion, Simon Peter responds with this great confession of faith. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus tells Peter, you're right, that is who I am. And it's upon this confession of faith, he says, that I will build my church. There's three things to note here about what Jesus says about the church. First of all, the church is founded on a confession of faith. It is founded on the confession of faith that Peter gives that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. The church is defined as a community of people who agree on who Jesus is, according to Peter's confession. And so if you do not believe this about Jesus, even if you meet on a Sunday morning, and even if you act like a church or you look like a church, but if you don't believe this about Jesus, you are not the church. Because the church is built upon proper Christology. The church is a gathering of people who agree with Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. The second thing to note is that the church belongs to Jesus. He says it very clearly here. He says, I will build my church. The church is Jesus's church. It's not Peter's church. It's not Pastor Steve's church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It is Jesus's church. And if the church belongs to Jesus, then he is the one who gets to define her beliefs, her structure, her practice, and her mission. We don't get to decide what the church will do. Jesus decides. Because the church is Jesus' church. The third thing to note is that Jesus promises that the church will prevail. 
He promises the church will, be, will prevail. You know, based upon statistical trends, it seems very clear that the church is losing influence in our culture. And based upon these trends, there are many who believe that the church is either dying or is already dead. But such a prediction of the demise of the church ignores the power and the promise of Jesus in verse 18, where he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There have been many people who have tried to defeat the church and they have all failed. Over the last 2000 years, the church has outlasted all of its critics and all of its enemies. And no enemy and no power, no philosophy and no movement has been or ever will be able to defeat the church. And if the Lord should tarry another 2000 years, the church will still be left standing long after its current critics and detractors are gone because Jesus has promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. As you can see, the church is important to Jesus. Jesus founded the church and he promised that the church will not just survive, but that the church will thrive. So being part of the church is a critical rhythm for a Jesus follower, for it's through the church that we become connected to God, our calling and our community. Let's start by looking at how the church connects us to God. Turn to Ephesians chapter five, Ephesians chapter five, verse 25. And here we're going to discover that being part of the church connects us to God because the church is the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5.25 says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The primary message of this passage is to talk to us men about how we can be better husbands. And it says, as husbands, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And how does Christ love the church? He loved the church so much that he died for her. Skip down then to verse 31. And in verse 31, the author lays out this foundational principle of marriage, which is found in Genesis 2.24. Quoting Genesis, he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. After laying out this foundational principle about marriage, he says, this mystery is profound. But if we read closely, the profound mystery is not that a man and a woman can come together and become one flesh in marriage, but that Christ and his church have come together and become one flesh. What is this passage saying? It's saying that our marriages merely exist as a metaphor of a greater reality, that of Christ's relationship to the church. Our marriages are a shadow of the relationship between Christ and his church. Do, do you get this profound mystery? Jesus Christ is married to his church. The church is the bride of Christ. There's a common sentiment that you may have heard from some people where they will say something like, I love Jesus, but I don't really like the church. And indeed, that might be you here today. You like Jesus, you find his teaching intriguing, you may even be drawn to the fact that he has died for your sin, but you reject the idea of the church 
And you reject the idea of organized religion because maybe of all the harm that it's done. But if indeed the church is the bride of Christ, when you say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church, that would be like you coming to me and say, Ken, I, I really like you. I'd really like, really like to spend some time with you, but don't bring your wife because I don't really like her. Here's the deal. If you're going to tell me that, you can't really like me and then tell me that you don't like my wife. And if you're going to hang out with me, you're going to be hanging out with my wife because I live with her. And guess what? I love her more than I love you. And so it is with Jesus. You can't love him and reject his bride. And if you want to hang out with Jesus, you're going to have to come to church because Jesus lives with his wife and Jesus is not going to leave his bride just to hang out with you. Now, that doesn't mean that the church is perfect. That's exactly why in verse 26, it says that Jesus died for the church, that he might sanctify her so that he might present the church in splendor without spot or wrinkle, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus is in the process of cleaning up his sinful and broken bride. But someday... Jesus is going to present his bride in splendor, in, as perfect, without spot or wrinkle, because Jesus loves his bride. Let me ask you, do you love Jesus' bride? Do you love the church? I have to say to you, I have come to love the church, and not because the church is perfect. Believe me, I have seen the church at its worst. I've been part of church splits where people in the church have been cruel and unloving to one another and to me. But it's also in the church where I first heard the good news about Jesus as a child. It is through the church that I was baptized. It is in the church that I was discipled as a young man. And the church has been there to support me when I'm grieving. And the church has been there to admonish me when I've been a fool. I was married in the church. I raised my family in the church, and it'll be in the church where my funeral is after I die. I have grown in my love for the church as I've grown in my love for Jesus. And as I've grown in my love for Jesus, I've grown in my love for the church. A few years ago, I was eating breakfast with a friend in a restaurant, and we were studying the Bible together over breakfast. And there was a lady sitting at the table next to us, and she overheard what we were talking about as we were going through that particular passage of Scripture. And so she came to us, and she, 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 she asked some questions about the passage we were looking at. And after talking a little bit about the passage, we, we asked her, so what church do you go to? Because it was clear that she had some Bible knowledge. She had some background, it appeared, in the church. And she responded to us and said, well, you know, I'm a seeker of the truth and I read the Bible, but I don't go to church because I believe that God is all around us. And I think that that's the belief of a lot of different people, that God is all around us. And so we can find connection to God wherever we happen to be as individuals. And so we don't really need the church, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus has placed us into the church so this part of the bride of Christ, we can be united with him. And if you're looking for connection to God, it will not happen apart from the church because the church is the organism by which we are united to Christ. Jesus has reserved his most intimate connection for his bride, his church. And so if we are outside the church, we are outside of that intimate connection with him. 
Being part of the church connects us to God because the church is the bride of Christ. So if being part of the church connects us to God, what does it mean or what does it take for us to be part of the church? Well, at its very most basic level, it means that we need to be present when the church gathers. Remember, the word ecclesia means a gathering or an assembly. So if you are not present when the church gathers, then you're not part of the ecclesia. You're not part of the church. Being part of the church is more than just being on a membership role. It means you have to be present to be part of the church. That you can't skip gatherings for months and weeks on a time and then still consider yourself to be part of the church. You actually have to show up. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 makes this point clearly. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The book of Hebrews here is written to Christians who were undergoing persecution. So these Hebrew Christians had really good reasons not to meet or to gather together. Because think about it, if you're a government official and it's your job to persecute Christians, where's the easiest place to go and round up a bunch of Christians? It's church on Sunday morning, right? It's the gathering. And so when the writer of Hebrews is telling these people, you need to assemble, he's saying, even at the risk of persecution, it's so important for you to meet, you need to risk that. And the writer of Hebrews tells these people not to neglect the meeting together, as is the habit of some. Why? Because to be connected with God, it cannot happen outside of church. Being part of the church is what connects us to God, and that necessitates that we attend church gatherings on a regular basis. Well, not only does the church connect us to God because it's the bride of Christ, but being part of the church also connects us to our calling because the church is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. Turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to take a look at verses 4 through 8. Romans 12, 4 through 8 says this, for as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. In this passage, the church is described as a body. And this metaphor for the church as a body is used throughout the New Testament. And throughout the New Testament, Christ is called the head of that body. And if he is the head, then that means that we are the various body parts, that we are Christ's eyes and his ears and his mouth and his arms and his leg. And just as our brain sends electrical signals through our nervous system to command our body, so Christ the head commands his church, his body, through the word and through the spirit in order to command his body, the church, on what to do. That means if Jesus wants to get something done in this world, he is going to use his body, the church, to get it done. If Jesus needs something done, he's not going to use angels from heaven or a flash of lightning from the sky. He's going to accomplish his will through his body, the church. The church is the primary agent by which Christ will accomplish his will on the earth. And within this body, then, we each have a unique function, a unique calling. 
Verse four says, in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. You see, when you become a follower of Jesus, you receive from the Holy Spirit a unique gifting. And that gifting is listed, some of those giftings are listed here in verses six through eight. He mentions prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, generosity, leadership, and mercy. And God, through his Holy Spirit, has called you to serve him through that unique gifting. Your spiritual gift is not given for your own benefit. Your gifting is not there to make you feel closer to God. It's meant to be exercised in the context of the church. What that means is that the church doesn't exist to help you express your gifting. The church doesn't exist to help you build your platform. But your calling and your gifting are there to help the church fulfill its role as the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says it this way. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit. For what? For the common good. We live in a consumer-oriented, materialistic culture. And sometimes we will approach the church with that same consumeristic attitude. So when choosing a church, we want to know, what is this church going to do for me? So we shop for church like we're shopping for a new car. Which church is it that has the programs and the services which meet my needs? Do do you want a church that has contemporary music or traditional music? Do you like topical sermons or expository preaching? Do, Do you need a good kids program? Do you need a good youth program? Do you need a seniors ministry? And our choice of church comes down to what church will meet my needs the best. But the church does not exist to meet your needs. Instead, we are here to help fulfill the church, to fulfill its role as the body of Christ. Being part of the church connects us to our calling because the church is the body of Christ. What that means is that being part of the church is more than just attending. It's more than just showing up. It also means we need to serve. What does it say in Romans 12, 6? Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, it says, let us use them. Romans 12, 11 goes on to say, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. I've heard people say that they aren't serving in the church because, well, they don't know what their spiritual gift is. But let me tell you that the only way you're going to discover what your spiritual gift is is to just start serving. Just start volunteering in different areas, and you're very soon going to discover what your spiritual gift is. You don't seek to understand what your gifting is first and then serve. You serve, and that's what reveals to you what your gifting is. I've also heard people go to the opposite extreme and say that they will only serve within their gifting. So I've heard people say things like, well, God has gifted me as a teacher, so I don't really have to help tear down chairs at the end of service. Your gifting should never be an excuse to not meet a need. And oftentimes, God will call you to serve him outside of your gifting and outside of your comfort zone, because that's when he can exercise his strength in your weakness. People, if you want to be connected to God's call for your life, it will not happen outside the church. Being part of the church connects us to our calling because the church is the body of Christ, and that necessitates that we don't just show up at church, but that we serve the church as well. Well, okay, so far we've looked at two metaphors for the church. We've looked at the church is the bride of Christ, and we've seen that the church is the body of Christ. 
And then in our final metaphor, we're going to see that being part of the church connects us to our community because the church is the brotherhood of Christ. In other words, we are all part of the same family. But that was not always the case. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 12, it says this. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jump down to verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are members of the household of God. Sometimes we will idealize the first century church as if that first century church had no problems and it's the perfect model of what a church should be. But this is not a realistic picture of the early church. And one of the great struggles of the early church was a struggle of racism. The earliest Christians were Jews, but over time, people of other ethnicities began to hear and respond to the gospel. And there arose racial animosity between Jews and non-Jews or Gentiles. And so in this passage in Ephesians, Paul is addressing this racism in the church. And he is saying that Jesus has broken down that dividing wall of hostility between the Jew and the Gentile. So now Jews and Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but instead they are citizens of a new kingdom. And old ethnic, tribal, and familial ties have been broken down because in Christ, we are all now members of the household of God. I don't need to tell you that we live in a polarized and a divided society. The walls of hostility in our culture are high, and our society is divided racially and economically and politically and morally. And as a result, we have become strangers and aliens to one another. But Jesus, through his blood shed on the cross, has broken down these dividing walls of hostility, and he has placed us into his family. So that for those of us who are in Christ, our allegiance is no longer to our ethnicity or our social or economic status or our political affiliation. Instead, our allegiance is to Christ and his church because in the church, we are all brothers and sisters in the family of God. One of the things I love about the church is how it brings people from all different diverse backgrounds and puts them into one, one community. Take a look at me, for example. I am a 56-year-old white male who works at a bank. I'm about as establishment as it comes. And there are a lot of you outside of the church that I would have nothing to do with. And frankly, a lot of you would have nothing to do with me either. But some of my deepest friendships are with people in this church who are half my age, who are of a different ethnicity than me, who come from a different social economic class than I do. And yet within the church, our connection to each other transcends age and gender and economic standing. Why? Because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Galatians 3.28 says it this way. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
in Christ, the things that divide this world do not divide us in the church. Because in Christ, we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. For in the church, we are all brothers and sisters in God's family. Now, for some of you, this metaphor of family is not a positive metaphor. Because maybe you have come from a dysfunctional or even an abusive family. And so when I say family, you find that metaphor somewhat disturbing. Furthermore, some of you have come from church backgrounds where you have been hurt by church. You have, maybe you have given up on the church, not for theological reasons, but because you've been wounded by the church. And if that is your experience, as a leader of this church, I want to tell you that I'm sorry that you've been through that. It breaks my heart when I hear of church leaders who have been domineering or who have been abusive, because that's not what Jesus wants for his church. And if you have experienced that, I am truly sorry. But at the same time, we need to have realistic expectations of the church because the church is just a group of imperfect sinners whom God has saved by his grace. And we are all in the process of sanctification. So we need to have a ton of grace towards each other and we need to have a ton of grace towards the church because Jesus is still working on us as a church. We are a work in progress. And I think in this way, this metaphor of family is especially apt because I don't know about you, but every family I've come across, even the best of families, have one thing in common. And that is that families are not perfect. And we know within our family each other's foibles and weaknesses and sins. There's no pretense in family because we live with each other. And so we see the good and the bad and the ugly in each other. And that's why I think this metaphor of family fits the church so much better than any other human relationship. You see, the church is a family. It's not an institution. The church is not a country club. The church is not a business. The church is not a not-for-profit charity. The church is the family of God. Think about a country club. In a country club, there are standards of membership. And you have to pay an initiation fee of thousands of dollars. So it weeds out the poor. It's only the rich who get to join the country club. And when you join, you have to dress a certain way. You have to act a certain way. And so everybody walks into the country club putting on this illusion that they've got their act put together. And here's the truth. Many of you would be far more comfortable in a country club than you would be in the church. Because in the country club, everyone is acting like you. Everybody looks like you. Everybody comes from the same social economic class as you. And guess what? In a country club, you don't have to interact with messy, poor, and broken people. But unlike a country club, there are no standards of membership in a family. There's no initiation fee to become part of a family. And you don't choose your family. You are born into your family. And so it is with God's family as well. In John 3, 3, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So just as you were born into your natural family, when you are born again, you've become part of God's spiritual family. And God has divinely placed us into his family, the church, so that he can demonstrate his redemptive power by bringing together this ragtag group of individuals who have no natural reason to associate with each other, and he unifies us together in being one family. Being part of the church connects us with one another because the church is the brotherhood of Christ. Which means we need to do more than just attend church or just serve the church. 
It means we need to love the church. And it means that we need to love one another. In John 13, 34, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what does it mean for us to love one another? Well, Paul gets very practical back here in Romans chapter 12. In Romans 12, starting in verse nine, he says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Contribute to the needs of the saints and show, seek to show hospitality. In these verses, we are called to love one another with a genuine love. And then he follows up with five descriptions of what genuine love looks like. First of all, he says, genuine love does not affirm sin, but it holds fast to what is good. This is just the opposite of what the world would tell you about love. The world would tell you that love means affirming people in their sin, but genuine love cares enough about the other person to call them out. Now, that doesn't mean we go around and start judging one another. Instead, this comes from a place of humility, and it comes with a spirit of gentleness and restoration. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Genuine love abhors what is evil and it holds fast to what is good. Secondly, genuine love is not earned, but it's based upon the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to love one another with brotherly affection. And remember, you don't get to pick your siblings. So your love for your brother or your sister is not based upon what they've done for you, but it's based upon the fact that they, like you, have been placed into the family of God. And so we are, so genuine love is not earned, but it's based upon our familial association. Third, genuine love seeks to honor the other. I love what it says here in verse 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. It should be like a competitive sport to see who can out-honor one another. Because genuine love doesn't seek to receive honor, it seeks to give out honor. And so genuine love seeks to outdo one another in giving honor. Fourth, genuine love meets the needs of one another. It says here to contribute to the needs of the saints. If we see a need in the church, we don't have to ask permission from anybody to meet the need. We just meet the need because we are to contribute to the needs of the saints. And fifth and finally, genuine love shows hospitality. It says in verse 13, seek to show hospitality. Now, many of us will read the word hospitality and immediately think, well, that means I need to invite people over to my house for a fancy meal. But hospitality is not merely inviting people into your home. It's inviting people into your life. And if that's the case, hospitality is not defined by a clean house and a fancy meal. Instead, hospitality is welcoming people into your life, even when your life is difficult or messy. Being part of the church necessitates that we don't just gather as a church. Necessitates that we go beyond just serving in the church. It means that we need to love the church and one another with a genuine love. My friends, if you are in Christ, you have been placed into the church. We are not intended to live the Christian life alone. We need each other to become fully formed, mature disciples of Christ. 
And that does not mean that the church is always easy or comfortable. But in fact, I would suggest to you that the way sometimes the church matures us is because the church is not easy or comfortable. And it's in the midst of that messiness that God forms us and molds us into being more like Christ. And so it is these rhythms of church that connect us to God and to our calling and to our community. Being part of the church connects us to God because the church is the bride of Christ. So therefore, let us gather as the church. Being part of the church connects us to our calling because the church is the body of Christ. Therefore, let us serve one another and the world through the church. And being part of the church connects us to our community because the church is the brotherhood of Christ. Therefore, we need to love the church and we need to love one another with a genuine love. Because Jesus tells us by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray.